This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break podcast with John Gibbs. This week, as always, I'm exploring what schools are for with my guest Louise Archer, Professor Louise Archer from UCL. We discuss science and science teaching in schools. This is Teachers Talk Radio. There's really no doubt that science is popular. Science fiction sells well. Science fiction movies films, Marvel comics, the world of superheroes, all of them tremendously popular. Half the population have probably attempted to read A Brief History of Time and made it well into the first chapter. Natural history documentaries and David Attenborough's soothing voice. So if people enjoy science and people enjoy science fiction, and the internet is full of YouTube films about black holes and stars and galaxies and places far away, how come then, since 1985, by one estimate, there's been a 40% decline in students choosing science subjects in higher education? It seems that students enjoy science at school very much, but don't actually want to be scientists. Some research has shown that primary school students do think of themselves as scientists and do think of themselves as enjoying science and maybe wanting to do something with science. By the age of 14, many have given up on this idea. Science is not for them. Girls are less likely to see themselves as scientists than boys. Working class, less than middle class. Ethnic minorities, less than the majority. So why is this? My guest this week Professor Louise Archer from the University College London has carried out some very interesting research through the Aspires Research Programme into why students fall out of love with science at school. And she comes to some very interesting conclusions about how this might be remedied. Probably most surprisingly, that science in school might be more engaging if we were more aware of issues of social justice. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And we're back with my guest, Professor Louise Archer from the University College London, who is a professor of the sociology of education. So who better to answer a question about science and take up of science in schools? So Louise, welcome to the Friday morning break. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> now, the first thing I want to discuss with you, Louise, is something I know you've been involved in, which is the Aspires Research Project. And the purpose of Aspires, as I understand it, was in fact to answer the question which is no coincidence because I want to ask you about this because you've carried out this piece of research. The answer to the question, why why has there been a decline in the take-up of science at schools 
And why is there a problem keeping students' interest in science? Yes. So the Aspires research has been going, well, since 2009, so for some time now. And it uh, originally started as a project. We were interested to try and understand what shapes children's uh, science and career aspirations. So how do they get ideas about what they want to be in the future and how do those grow or or fade away over time? What makes a difference to to what a young person uh, thinks about science and where they end up in the future? So we started that project and um, it continued. It kept going. So we put in for we've had two further phases of funding. So we've now got a study that's actually ended up um, tracking a cohort of young people from age 10 up to 22. So it's a mixed method study. So that involves uh, surveys. So we've surveyed over 48,000 young people to date in England and also interviews. So we've got 50 young people along with their parents or carers who we've interviewed repeatedly over time to, to give us really quite a, um, a rich uh, picture, sort of breadth and depth of how they end up going in their in their different trajectories, how they end up going to do what whatever they're going to end up doing. So it's got a sort of seven up quality to it, hasn't it? Every every few we well, said not every seven years, I'm guessing. How did you how did you select the fifty? So originally we um, constructed a sample of uh, primary schools across the country. We divided them we by a by region. Um, by types of school, we wanted to make sure we had balances of different sorts of demographics, so class and gender and race and so on. And we wrote to the, the schools, asked them to take part. They asked the parents and it was the parents who responded and said, yes, me and my child are uh, interested in taking part. Um, originally, we started with 92 and we've kept 50 young people over over the 11 years. And is the, is the focus on primary? Because... The sort of thinking behind this and the thinking behind science capital is that something in primaries where the foundations of interest either are established or aren't established, that that's a sort of especially important. Yeah, I think before we came into this, we had a sense of, you know, um, we didn't quite know how popular science, for instance, was or not. Or if does it start popular and then decline or does it stay the same or does it increase in popularity? So really, we, we started in primary just as, you know, it's, to see what what do children like then, and then we can follow it through secondary and out of secondary to see to see what happens. That's interesting because my my memory of primary school, and I'm now remembering the 1960s into the 1970s, <laughs> and was that one of the things I was looking forward to as I went to secondary school would be science because there wasn't any. I mean, there was a nature table, and you collected leaves and things and put it on that, and there was a pond and the. In the, in, the, in the school but you didn't really do science in any any sense and I had an idea of you know I'd go into laboratories and, and when we were toured around the secondary school I saw laboratories of we're going to do science I guess that things have moved on a bit and there's there is science is more embedded in primary schools than it used to be yes it definitely is more embedded now and um you know it has a much stronger profile but I also say you're not alone in the desire for the Bunsen burner I think often going to secondary is associated with being with being able to do more um, more dramatic science, there's fire or more more likelihood for sort of uh, more equipment and uh, excitement. So I'd say amongst the, ch- the young people in our study, there was an excitement as well about going to secondary school and, and, and doing that. I think that's something that's endured. But I think we were also surprised by just how interested young people were in science through primary and through early secondary. 
That's not to say that they thought that was something that they would continue with in the future. But we were very surprised to see that and, and reassured. I and mean, I think it says, tells us that schools are doing a good job there. You know, like so in our surveys, over 60 percent of children through primary and all through early secondary were telling us they're finding science in school interesting. They're enjoying it. But what did shock us was that that interest didn't translate into them seeing it as something for them. So the proportion of young people from from primary through to the end of secondary who actually thought they might want to, for example, be a scientist or have a, a job in science was incredibly low. It was um, you know, only about sort of 15 percent. And it didn't really vary. We thought that given the high interest, you know, when you're in primary, the world's your oyster. So uh, we were surprised that that didn't really change at all between age 10 and 18. Of course, there is the kind of cliche of the idea that when you're in primary school, you have all sorts of mad ideas. You want, you know, you want to be an astronaut or something. You want to, you know, all the all things like that. As you say, that anything is possible. So at the side by side, you've got students that like science, enjoy science, and say it's a fun lesson, but but it's not for me. In the future, it's not what I'll do. And that's what we were particularly interested in. So um, you can like lots of things, but what makes something feel like it's for me? What resonates? And we were particularly interested when we look at the patterns of who might be aspiring to be a scientist. We could see there that, um, particularly over time, it becomes narrower. So there are fewer and fewer girls, for example, aspiring to tend the people who think they want to become a scientist are more likely to be um, boys from more affluent families and from white or South Asian backgrounds. So we were interested in, you know, what creates these ideas and these patterns? How, do, how does that emerge and get solidified? And why is it exacerbating over time rather than getting better? That's interesting because, I mean, if you want to get the attention of a young person below the age of about 12 anyway, if you say something to do with space or particularly dinosaurs, you have them. <laughs> They're going to absolutely listen to what you're, you're saying. So the interest is there. So that I suppose the Aspires project is the research project is saying there's a problem, there's something going on, and I suppose that's that's what you were looking at. And what what sorts of things did you find were happening? Well, we found that it's that you can imagine there's no one thing. It's not one thing that is making young people think that science is not for me. It's a whole load of interconnecting factors. But among those is the role of the school in education. So I think in England, we do quite a good job as a nation of putting young people off thinking that science is something I could do. We have lots of things that, um, despite their interest, are telling them it's not for you. So, for example, we have that streaming out of double and triple science from around about age 13. And at this point, we're telling almost three quarters of young people this sort of elite science route isn't for you. And then when we come to A level, we know that maths and chemistry, sorry, uh, physics and chemistry are marked harder than other subjects. So it's harder to get an A in those because of the way they're graded and marked, which translates into these sort of gatekeeping processes. So you're less like, if, if you're going to want to do a maths or physics or chemistry A level, you're more likely to need a highest grade at GCSE rather than in some other subjects. So again, we get all of these messages along with things like Sheldon off the Big Bang Theory, you know, sort of popular stereotypes and characters, telling us that you need to be really clever and only geniuses really continue with these subjects. So it's in a way unsurprising that a lot of young people, the majority in our study, were saying, well, science is interesting, but it's not for me. 
So they don't want, they, on the one hand, there's those social stereotypes that they don't want to see themselves as scientists because scientists are nerdy or scientists are, un, are impossibly clever about, and they, 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 in a way that ordinary human beings can't be. But I remember, absolutely right. I remember the thing that I was always fascinated with science, but as I went through school, I realized that there were, there were hurdles of mathematical ability, you know, that were going to filter me out as I went through. So whether it's SATs or GCSE, so we're filtering people out of a thing that we really want them to go into. Yes. And that also uh, exacerbates with things like gender. So, for example, in our sample, even where we have young people who are, who are you know, um, objectively good at maths and science, they're getting top grades, for instance, that still doesn't mean they necessarily see themselves as clever enough to do it. So, for example, one of the uh, young women in our study that I interviewed, who, who we called Kate, um, she it was when I interviewed her about choosing her degree, um, she'd done maths and physics and um, biology and further maths, I think, at, at um, A-level. I said, you know, what do you want to do? She said, well, you know, I really like physics, but it's no way I could take it as a degree. I, you know, it's way too hard. I'm not clever enough to do it at a degree level. But she got an A-star. She was our highest attaining young person. Uh, she got, you know, A-stars in all her subjects across the board. And so I said, you know, it's that question, well, if you're not clever enough for it, who is? And it's not the issue of actually being good at it or not. It's that we then have all these ideas around who the ideal physicist is. And often it is that notion of it's the impossible sort of male genius like Sheldon off the Big Bang Theory. And these ideas can can make young people feel that even if they're actually good at it, that it's still um, too hard. And I'm, I'm guessing that you found a gender and class attitude to those stereotypes as well. In other words, um, scientists are male and scientists are, um, are speak a certain way and have a certain er, er, erudite way of talking. They don't have working class accents. So that, that, and again, that's not, that's not us. Yeah. So, and, you know, if you ask young people which scientists, famous scientists are you aware of, you know, they, they can only know who they get exposed to. So, you know, if you look in the curriculum or popular culture, there isn't the same breadth. It's not that there's nobody, but it's not the common view. There's still the common stereotype of who a scientist is. And some young people were also telling us that um, people, they, you know, their, their teachers or their family members would also sometimes unwittingly reinforce those stereotypes. So we did have examples of, you know, um, young women saying, well, my teacher told me you need a boy brain to study maths or physics. Or all, my t- all, the, all the girls studying physics are tomboys. These comments, which, you know, unfortunately are still around. And there used to be, I mean, I don't know whether this is still true, but there used to be the idea that boys uh, socialised in a way into thinking they could do science. So they would, they would, even when they knew little of what they're actually saying was true, they would use, they would try to use technical language, maybe not always accurately. But that would, that, that convinced girls in the class that the boys somehow knew what they were talking about, whether they did or not. It's that they took a kind of ownership of it. Yeah. And there's a really interesting study that was conducted in the States um, by a colleague called Heidi Carlo. And she talked to, uh, she studied class, advanced level uh, physics classes. And she talked to the teachers there. And in those classes, the girls were actually achieving slightly higher than the boys, uh, attaining slightly more highly than the boys. But the teachers say, well, the girls work really hard. They're really diligent. But the boys, they've got a natural brilliance, but they're just lazy. 
And so again, there's this th- there's this tendency with stereotypes to try and explain them away. So we sort of, you know, try and explain the behaviours to fit the stereotype. And these things do shape young people's experiences. So I, I think they're things that we need to be to, to be aware of. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Is there, is there also a resource issue in that not all schools, uh, primary schools, teach science well and schools that are from difficult areas where there's social deprivation, a lot of, um, a lot of poverty or so on, will tend to say, well, that's not really our focus. I mean, the least of our worries is whether we get the kids to understand science. We've got to get them to just get into school and uh, read and things of that kind. So you get a very different school experience depending on which kind of school you went to. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, school. I think all schools are these days working in really challenging circumstances. There is so much expected of them, so much thrown at them. And as you say, some schools are dealing with additional challenges on top uh, that they have to meet first before you can kind of almost like get to the substance of learning. We've never worked with schools who, who don't believe in science and don't want to prioritise it. Um, they all feel it's important, but uh, I think there's sometimes um, concerns around, particularly if in primary, if teachers haven't come from a science background, whether how secure they feel with understanding the concepts. But particularly, the thing we're more um, concerned with is that whether it's primary or secondary, we don't think teachers in general, but science teachers in particular, are often given enough support to think to, to really understand and engage with issues around inclusion and um, equity and how do you create a really inclusive science learning experience that can help all children feel that this is for me and it's not something distant and alien and it's something that you know, can often get squeezed out of initial teacher education there's not always lots of uh, professional development around this so in a way how can we expect teachers to understand what's really quite a complex issue uh, on top of all the other stuff they have to do. So that's something that our research has also been trying to work with teachers um, in partnership to sort of support ways of thinking about how to make science more inclusive through everyday teaching. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs, my guest, Professor Louise Archer. We're discussing how to create an equitable and engaging approach to teaching science in schools. I, I remember I remember being in a school um, where there were well, of course, it was streaming. It was streaming. I mean, I've been at schools where there was no streaming. The school where there was streaming and. Classes where behaviour was difficult were given books to make notes out of, and you wouldn't—they were not allowed anywhere near the Bunsen burners or the, or the things that might burn. And the, the kids who were, did the experiments and were, had things set up for them as they came in, because they thought, well, you know, it's, it's one, uh, could be could be trusted not to break things, did those. So it was self-reinforcing that there you was a, there was a different, very different sort of science experience for the, for some kids and others. 
which made me think whether well, there was a resourcing thing. Now, science capital, I mean, it gets, I guess it gets its, the, the idea behind it, or, or it's reminding me of this, the idea of social capital, cultural capital. Before actually, but I want to ask another question before we get there, actually. Um, why does it matter if science isn't for, for everybody? And we aren't, uh, and, and lots of students are rejecting science in secondary school. Someone might say, "Well, we live in a we live in a highly a society of um, where where soft, sort of soft social skills are more important, and create the creative arts are one of the major major parts of the economy." Why does science matter? Mm. I think for us, there's several reasons why science matters. So, um, the main thing we're concerned about is that in the modern society. Being scientifically literate, I think, is an important part of active citizenship. So we do live in, you know, a technological society. I think there's an important um, equity argument for why everyone should be able to participate and understand and have a view and be able to understand and treat critically the stories in the news, the technologies that are happening. I mean, lots of things are coming through with AI, and there are lots of implications of that, for for example. Um, But Everyday health decisions, um, should I be vaccinated or not? So many things. I think scientific literacy is really important, really useful to people as citizens. There's also the argument that the UK economy and society um, is facing a STEM, a science, technology, engineering and math skills gap, and that those are the areas of jobs and growth in the future. They're areas that the country needs. We're going to be a you know, healthy, sustainable planet. These are all important things. And so... Um, there's lots of policy concern about the supply of future scientists and engineers in the future. And also having enough people to teach science, you know, science and maths and teachers in the future. So I think there are lots of reasons personally and at the society level. Um, and also science, you know, science careers, STEM careers, are high status and often tend to pay quite well. So for social mobility, I think it's really important and for the future science and technology that we have an inclusive and diverse workforce. Yes, absolutely. I think your point about science literacy is so important. Uh, I think that of all the arguments for science in schools, science as a way of thinking, to overcome that sense in which science is the province of a priesthood of learned people that we mere mortals can't understand that we have de-skilled ourselves and learned a kind of learned helplessness and ignorance in the face of science, which leads to both a cynicism about experts, that they might be up to something, or that science itself is to, is to be feared, which leads to that, that intellectual relativism, which says that crazy ideas and, and conspiracy theories uh, are as valid as any science. It's what I believe. So being both critical and able to make judgments about valid ideas is the essence of science. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ASCOL is due to ballot members for the first time in its history. The four education unions will ballot over strike action this term and, if backed by members, would see action stretching into next year and could lead to full school closures. The government continues to hold its position that the most recent pay offer is fair and reasonable and that next year school funding will be at its highest level in history. 
Schools Week covers the further implications of school funding issues in a story about the cuts some head teachers are making. In a survey conducted by the National Foundation for Education Research for the Sutton Trust, it was found that schools are cutting back on school trips, teaching assistance and IT equipment to help balance stretched budgets. Responses from 1,428 primary and secondary teachers show 50% of senior leaders said their school had cut back on trips and outings this year. Schools in the most disadvantaged areas were most likely to be impacted by cuts to trips. The research suggests that in secondary schools, leaders are also cutting back on subject choices at both GCSE and A-level. The Department for Education has estimated schools overall could afford £2.4 billion in new spending between 2022 and 2024 before facing net pressure on their budgets. But the Confederation of School Trusts warned its members could face a prolonged period of financial challenge due to pay rises and other increasing costs if more funding was not forthcoming. The Sutton Trusts poll also showed that some school leaders are using pupil premium funding to plug budget gaps. The report also underlines the issue of recruitment into the sector, with the NFER predicting that the DfE will again miss its recruitment into initial teacher training target this year. Meanwhile, the TES focused on a DfE funding rule change to help schools hit by falling pupil numbers due to a decline in birth rate. Schools that are not rated good or outstanding will be eligible for additional funding. Other changes will be introduced from 2024 to 25, and councils will set expectations around the minimum funding they must provide to support schools with significant increases in pupil numbers. Schools with more than one site will also receive extra funding where they need to duplicate services over multiple sites. Falling birth rates mean there are projected to be half a million fewer pupils in English state nurseries and primaries in 2028, compared with 2022. Nurseryworld.co.uk reports on the findings of its recent survey into staff wellbeing around Ofsted inspections. In the article on its website, it reports that over 3,000 owners, managers and staff responded to questions around mental health and well-being and the impact of inspections. Many responded that they felt increased stress and anxiety in the run-up to an inspection, with many having sleepless nights and some suffering from panic attacks and depression. The possibility of losing funding, should a setting be judged inadequate, was also mentioned. Full details of the survey can be found on the Nursery World website. The Guardian reports that a record figure of £4.8 billion interest has been added to student debt in Britain last year. The government has more than doubled the amount of money it makes from charging interest on student loans as graduates face borrowing costs of almost twice the rate set by the Bank of England. The Office for National Statistics said the accrued interest had doubled from £2.3 billion in the previous year. The forecast average debt among the cohort of students who started their course in 2021 and 22 is £45,800 when they complete their course. Finally, the Morning Star in Scotland reports that increased spending per school pupil is failing to deliver improved outcomes. Spending per pupil has risen to £8,500 in Scotland, compared with around £7,200 across England, Wales and Northern Ireland but attainment in Scotland is not on a similarly rising trajectory. Research by the Institute for Fiscal Studies shows that despite having the highest spending per pupil across the UK for a long period, 
test scores in reading, maths and science have either stayed the same or have been going down. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello. This week, I'm going to attempt to explain in simple terms how the internet works. Let's take this tech briefing, for example. I know every single one of you at some point have thought, how on earth can someone who makes a recording in one part of the world be broadcast globally to thousands of people and there'd be very few errors? I won't even go off when you go under a bridge. Although... I did give Tom Rogers a lift once and can tell you he's so radio he stopped talking when I drove through the Mersey Tunnel. For the internet to work, a way of allowing people to simultaneously use the same cables had to be created. The traditional phone call method could not be used because this would limit the number of users. If computers made a dedicated connection like a phone call does, then there'd be a lot of waiting going on. Imagine if you had to wait in line for a download. You are 457th in the queue. Your download is important to us. Please listen to this monotonous music while you wait. It's simply wouldn't catch on. So what happens? Data is transmitted in a similar way to the postal system, just a lot quicker. Right now, this podcast is arriving on your device in a series of packets. Packets are really small chunks of data that can be sent from device to device via routers. Without getting too geeky on you, the host server gets a request from you when you press play. The request says, start sending me the packets of the audio chocolate you know as Steve Woods' tech briefing. And like chocolate, it's split into chunks. These chunks are given an address to get to, an address of where they came from, some other information, like the type of file being sent, so your device knows which application to open it in, and a number so the packets can be ordered and rebuilt when they arrive. These packets are directed over the internet by routers that use the address information to direct them, and then rebuilt by your device once they arrive. Because packets are so small and can be forwarded rapidly, lots of computers can send data at the same time and keep everybody connected. So next time you're using the internet, consider that what you're looking at has probably been split into thousands of packets routed across the world and been rebuilt in a matter of milliseconds for you to enjoy. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods. And that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest, Professor Louise Archer. We're discussing how to create an equitable and engaging approach to teaching science in schools. this research and you realize there's something going on and you then then practically you want to develop an approach to teaching the science capital approach to teaching how, how was that developed what did you how did you take that forward so in one sense we would hope that teachers wouldn't see it as anything too radical and different because it is absolutely grounded in existing good pedagogy we wanted that to be the starting point we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel from that point of view but what it does is hone it more so it particularly um, foregrounds issues of equity and inclusion so it brings those to the front and it's helping teachers in quite I think a practical way to think about how to how to centre the child so again that's a core bit of you know that's regular teaching practice but it's helping you do that through the lens of equity and the lens of science as well 
it sort of brings those ideas to light. And in particular, it's doing it through the lens of science. So it's saying, how do I really um, build up the dimensions of science capital that could could help the young people and connect science closely to their lives? So out of the Aspires research, you find that students are seeing science as something not for them, not part of their lives. So the answer might be, as you're suggesting, to find opportunities within ordinary teaching, the everyday lesson, opportunities to connect science with their lives. You, you describe it as equity, looking for opportunities of equity, finding how science might relate to the difference and diversity of experiences of students within any classroom. Well, a, a teacher listening to this might say, well, isn't that simply differentiation? Isn't that simply teaching to a range of abilities? And you're suggesting teach, teach to a range of social and cultural ex experiences and backgrounds. Shouldn't good teachers be doing this anyway? Yeah, so as you say, so from our SPARS project, we realised there are all these factors that are important in stopping young people continuing with science, but now what do we do about it? Is there anything that we can do? So we took these ideas and we worked over a number of years in partnership with teachers to develop a teaching approach that could help better connect young people with science. So to bridge that gap between the sort of, I'm interested in science, but don't see it as being for me. So we wanted it to be really practical. We thought the last thing we wanted to create was a whole new set of uh, curricula or resources or things like that. So we want really it's a mindset approach. It works with any curriculum and it's just helping teachers find ways to link link the content to the actual young people in their classroom. So we worked for several years, we developed the approach, we trialed it over two consecutive years with teachers in London and then across uh, in the north. And we found that it was working. We found that the, the students were happier, they were feeling there was more meaning, more relevance um, in their science and they were learning more because it made sense, it resonated with them more. And our teachers were happier, they were telling us they felt it was helping them to get back to teaching in a way that meant something to them, teaching for understanding. And we know it's really difficult, we were working with secondary school teachers then, you know, to get away from that sort of teaching for the test, but it felt helped them connect with the students in their class as well. So teachers we know are very good at contextualising science, but what we developed in the approach was this going beyond that and actually personalising it and localising it to the particular young people in your class. So the approach looks different in different classrooms because the students are different. So as you say, so the, what, I, what I took from it when I looked at it was getting away from the, we, we have to cover this this term. So, you know, heads down, we've got to cover this. And this is going to, this will be on your test. Uh, so, uh, you know, well, I've experienced teaching like that and um, where you, you don't know why you have to learn this thing. <laughs> you don't really know what this thing is, but you know that if you learn it off by heart, you can say it and do it in a test. So it's rooting it in, in sort of in their lives, in the lives of people. One of the most interesting things I thought the most surprising thing was not surprising, interesting thing. This idea of social equity, of a kind of social fairness, which doesn't seem, you know, wouldn't wasn't the first thing you'd attach to science as an idea of teaching, that you have to look outside the classroom, it's not beyond the kid and their abilities in the classroom, what you have, the difficulties they have, but the but where they come from, their their background, their family, their culture, their gender. And those sorts of things. How do you, how how are, how are teachers explaining to you that they've changed their approach when they think of, think of teaching that way? 
teachers have come to us in a range of, you know, some teachers have come quite enthusiastic and it's been quite close to what they're doing already and some have been more sceptical. But they've all, when they've been trying it, they've said quite soon that they've really noticed the difference taking this very sort of equity student-centred approach in the students' engagement. And they've had more of the, what some of them have called meerkat moments or light bulb moments. And they can see it when um, they're, they're using the approach and it just connects. And they're saying almost that you can always see this children sort of sit up and, oh, hang on, that actually relates to my life. And I think they're finding those moments quite rewarding. And, you know, it's good for the, the young people because they're seeing the relevance of it. Sometimes teachers are quite rightly really concerned with covering content. And what we're trying to do with this approach is say the content's important. But sometimes to have that learning, you can have more effective learning if you can connect first, because then you get those meerkat moments and the, the kids will grab onto it and, and um, you know, make sense of it and run with it more. Yes, I like that. I like that idea. I've certainly experienced it. It's great when it happens in, as a teacher and you say something or you do something, you try and explain something in a new way. I taught um, social sciences, politics and things of that kind. But you, you try and explain some political thing and you, you'd say, well, this is like... And you mentioned something in popular culture or, I mean, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get that. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is great when that happens. Is there, when you, you look at a class and you think, well, I know, I know that you're struggling a bit and I know that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're flying along with this and I know you're having difficulties, like all teachers would. And then you look at the class and you say, well, but I, if I want to think about your background, and the assets you might bring to it from your culture. Is there a danger you could walk into some really dodgy social um, stereotyping? Well, you know, you, you you're from this particular background. They still, for you must know about this. It's, it, is there a or um, I don't know? Your boys, boys, you boys are interested in football. Obviously, you're all boys, so you're interested in football. Girls, this is a, I can think of a cooking analogy that would be. I mean, I'm just I'm being crass now, but. That, that sort of stereotyping where you, you're trying to tailor your teaching to what you think the social context is and you get it badly wrong. Yeah, so absolutely. So the, the approach is not about trying to, to guess or to use stereotypes, but it's really, it, it does emphasise the value of teachers having the time to really get to know their students. So it is about tailoring it to those particularly, and what do they actually like and not, not making assumptions. So in some cases... It has, you know, there have been boys who have been very engaged through football because that's something that was really meaningful to them, but that wouldn't work for every boy. So obviously there's a challenge. Teachers have big classes and one of the common things that they'll say is, well, how do I tailor it to everyone in my class? Because they're all different. Um, but one of the approaches we found quite useful is teachers planning a lesson through the eyes of a child or a young person in their class who normally isn't that engaged, who they normally feel that they're, you know, they're, they're not the most engaged in the class. And it doesn't matter that they're not everyone. Just that simple process of sort of decentering, the taking a different perspective has often given teachers a really, you know, nice insight. And they've come up with nice ideas of how to tailor that lesson. And we've seen in cases, um, case studies of where they've been doing this with particularly young people. And it's really led to a big difference in not only the young person's engagement, but it's also engaged the class as well. So, for example, where um, uh, 
a student hasn't been used to speaking much and then they're being asked and they're given the opportunity to share their views and experiences more, often we found the rest of the class have also found that really interesting and enriching. And one of our teachers talked about how just using the approach and developing it over, it takes a little time to sort of develop and embed. She said it moved over the course of the year from what she would call golden moments, so those old lovely moments we're talking about, like the meerkat moments, through to what she called a golden haze. And she meant the whole culture of the class sort of shifted and changed over the year and everyone got more used to having a voice and it became a much more sort of um, collaborative and dialogic space and, and much more engagement. So it's a sort of shift in the culture and not, not just, um, it's not just tailoring to individual kids, but it's, it's a process really of, um, of, sh of shifting the mindset in, in how we teach science. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. So it's, it's, it's trying to draw everybody into the, into the class. I mean... And, and find their particular interests and find their particular angle on the subject. And that has a knock-on effect. In other words, that changes the atmosphere. This, is, this isn't something that's being done to you. This is something we're involved in. Is that what I imagine? Yeah, so exactly. And often we, we talk about it as that shift from doing science to people to doing science with students. Yes, I, I remember when one part of my career I taught in a very progressive school and, and uh, it was uh, one, one of the thoughts I remember when I was first interviewed to the job there, they said, well, there's no, there's no subject in the school and science, and they did, oh, they did a very interesting thing to digress. They had science taught all together, so there was no biology, physics and chemistry. They taught them, they kept them all together throughout the school and they mixed all the social sciences up with the art subjects and so on. And the head teacher said to me, John, he said, there's no subject in this school that you can't use drama and theatrics. He said, your background, you've been a bit of drama, you've done a bit of drama. You can use that in any subject, for instance, science, and go into role play and so on. And um, I thought, well, play, learning through play, was very much a thing. I'm going back now to the 1980s. But there's been a tendency to push that out. And the emphasis is now knowledge. It's, it's a transfer of knowledge into their heads. They need to know the facts. It's the bread grind. They need to know the facts. Uh, away from the sort of fun and play of teaching. I don't know. Is there, is there an element in which you're asking for a bit more fun? Or is it just me being, hope, hoping it's there? I think there's always space for fun and interest. Um, but I, I, I do agree that I think what we're also saying teachers really want, need, is space and time to just stop and reflect. They are so busy going at 110 miles an hour, so much to do, to that they have to perform to, to deliver. Um, but we found that where we see really innovative, really inclusive teaching is where teachers have had space to stop, think, reflect, share with their colleagues and have sort of, you know, structures, resources to help that sort of structure thing. And I think, if anything, if I could give teachers one thing, it would be more time to be able to stop and reflect. Yes, you, you, you immediately have a very receptive audience. <laughs> yeah.
because I, I, when you were talking earlier and you said you got there before me, you said, well, of course, when it's when you've got a class of 30, that's going to be difficult and could you acknowledge that difficulty? But one of the big issues, of course, is, is time. I mean, uh, the, the government's workforce teaching survey that they recently carried out, which looked at the, the primary concerns that teachers were worried about, things that, that they felt were the greatest obstacles to their teaching, and time was the one, and time taken up with things that took them away from the classroom. Uh, and, of course, you know, the big issue at the moment is Ofsted and the pressure that uh, we, we, we must conform to certain objectives. Do you think there is any kind of conflict? You can say there isn't. I don't, you know, I know that I'm leading in this direction. Any kind of conflict between your approach to teaching and the output-driven Ofsted approach to assessment in schools? Yes, I think the things that we prioritise and think are important are often the things that get squeezed out in the current reality of teaching and the demands put on schools. So giving teachers time and space to reflect, as I said, also the the space and time the com- and the safety to innovate. I think good innovation and teaching often doesn't just come in a flash. You know, it's developed iteratively over time. And again, we need time and space to try stuff out. Things don't always work first time. And I think in the current sort of um, climate, that, that can often feel like a risk. I think, you know, it takes a brave, confident, strong teacher to be able to take risks. So I think um, I would like a more supportive climate for teachers and schools. I think I'd also like more um, opportunities and resource for more collaboration between researchers and teachers. I think research that's done in isolation from teachers is often, you know, not not close enough to practice, can be very difficult to translate or doesn't understand the context. And equally, practice that has no forms of reflections and research can also be difficult to iterate and uh, innovate and and, and so on as well. So um, I think there's lots of things I'd like to see valued and I'd really like to see issues of equity put at the centre of of everything, whether it's, you know, um, thinking about... uh, pedagogy, thinking about inspection, and so on. I think those those core issues, for me, um, when they're not front and centre, the default isn't neutral. The default is the reproduction of inequalities. So for me, it's important they're really embedded like a stick of rock through everything that we do in schools and, and how they're inspected. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you used the word risk <laughs> there, because I think we have... Uh, <laughs> pushed into the teaching profession a very risk-averse culture in a lot of schools. And and it's come about because of uh, pressures of things like inspections and so on and exam results and uh, and and the um, and the fact that schools are in competition with each other, of course. So, uh, you know, there, where, again, I, in my, my teaching career, if I, go, if I go back to the dark ages of the, you know, the 1980s, I could remember one sunny afternoon uh, in a history lesson, a lad said to me in class, he said, oh, he said, uh, there's a Roman ruin near my house. So without filling in any forms or anything, I said, let's go there. <laughs> and we all headed off out of the school and walked across to town and went there. We came back to the lesson before. It was a two-hour lesson, so we had plenty of time. And I thought, well, I've been fired for that now. <laughs> now, I wouldn't advocate doing that, by the way. That was very wrong of me. And I should have filled in plenty of forms and before I left the school with 30 kids. But... Uh, there is, you know, there is, there has been a sense now in which you really cannot take risks. Uh, I think so. Innovation isn't the primary concern of most teachers right now. 
if social equity is a thing that teachers should be concerned with, society isn't particularly, is it? I mean, if you look out, when kids look out of school, they see we don't live in a society of massive amounts of social equity. What they see is terrific unfairness, really, and uh, social advantage, and um, and so on. Not only just in the world, but in in Britain, class advantage, university types of kids go to university, private schools have an enormous advantage and so on. So if you come into this classroom and say, look, this the culture of our school is is social equity, isn't it overwhelmed by a kind of tidal wave of that's not the case in the in the world outside school? I'm not sure there's a question there. That might have been just a series of observations. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I mean I, I think I think, uh, I mean, I love working with young people because they are often just so on it. I mean, they, they see and they call things as they see it. And a lot of them are quite rightly really concerned with levels of inequality in society. And I think they, they're much more conscious of it maybe than some previous generations, which I think is fantastic. So I think there's a receptive audience there. And we can't, if we don't talk about inequalities, that doesn't mean they don't exist. We can't really sweep them under the carpet. And I think the strength of an equity approach to teaching is it bring those, brings those into teaching and it, um, you know, by engaging with them, be really important for young people and they can really help find their voice and see the point in what they're learning. A lot of young people approach, come to science feeling that they don't know anything or, you know, feeling that they're not clever. And it's that, that centering of them and, and showing, actually, you know something about this already. You have experienced something. This will matter to you in some way. It's, I mean, the wonderful thing about science is it, it is about, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's all about our lives. So it's, in a way, it's not hard to connect in that sense. One of the most interesting concepts that I've come across in the things I've read that you've written, or some of your research online, is this idea of science capital. And I'm sure most people listening to this know that this comes from Pierre Bourdieu's ideas of social capital and cultural capital, those, those advantages that the middle classes have through social connections and networking or through family connections or through cultural capital and the sorts of academic subjects and knowledge that is valued in our society and that kind of knowledge that isn't valued in our society, and which tends to be the middle-class cultural knowledge and uh, that is valued more highly and therefore examined and so forth. So deeply ingrained within our education system uh, is a class bias towards middle-class attitudes, values, knowledge, and a hierarchy of knowledge that is essentially class-structured. Your notion of science capital but i think you call it the foundation is equity the foundation is awareness of, of students as individuals and the background of their particular uh, culture and gender and so on and above that you've got this idea of science capital and science capital has these pillars of what are their attitudes what are their is their knowledge and their family background and who you know and their social connections and so on how do you how do you confront the fact that some kids will? I mean, some kids will say, well, my father's takes me, we go, we go off to the museum and we go this place and we go that place. My, my father's a scientist anyway. Or, and another child who's never been to a museum. I mean, I, I, I think, was it, um, yeah, my wife had recently was working for a few years ago, actually, was, spoke to a social worker in Liverpool, not Liverpool, Blackpool. And there was an area of Blackpool, not far from the sea, where the kids didn't know it was a seaside town. 
The teacher said, well, a lot of kids here never didn't, they didn't know they were on the sea because they live on the estate. There's the, there's the, you know, there's the estate and the local shopping parade. That's their world. And they've never been beyond it. So how do you, how do you create social, social, cultural capital for kids that don't have it? Uh, primary teachers, primary science teachers that we worked with, for instance, would think about when they're using examples or setting homeworks and so on, being very conscious about everyone's not on a level playing field. Not everyone has the same cultural reference points or experiences to draw on. So they'd often then just do little adjustments to their teaching to either change the examples or the questions they're using or introduce extra activities to to create more of a level playing field. So, for example, where they might have said, um, bring in an object or a photograph or something from home to illustrate this particular science concept of whatever we're doing, or um, you know, find a place in your home where evaporation is taking place, for instance. Being aware that all the children have different home contexts and may have different experiences. Sometimes our teachers will do things like have the whole class go around the school and identify areas where maybe something wet is drying on a radiator or a puddle in the playground. Or they'd find contexts that all of the children could relate to. But then they were also aware of going beyond and extending children's experiences as well. So just being aware of differences in science capital, the teachers would then use that understanding to just adjust their, their teaching to, to take account of that. One of the things that, I mean, one of the things all the way through my teaching career I was aware of was what they used to call enrichment. You know, there was the thing, there were the things, they often sat, sat outside the classroom. You know, they'd be the cram their heads with knowledge in the classroom, then enrich it outside. And, and what you always seem to be saying is something like, you know, the enrichment can take place within the context of lessons themselves. But the enrichment in a school would often be bolted on, and it, but it was very important. And I, there was, I'm sure it was very important. These would be the visits to museums, these would be the outside speakers, these would be the clubs and societies. That enabled kids from all backgrounds to have the, the capital of connections and meeting people and, and, and seeing people who they could aspire to be and realising there was a world beyond just facts and figures they had to learn in, in, the, in the classroom. And a guest I had a few weeks ago was talking, I think it was in UCL, but he, he was talking about how Schools again. I mean, I, I don't want to overdo it really, but the cost, the costs, and the pressure of time means that's one of the first things to be cut. So the outside speakers program, you haven't got time for clubs and societies, and anyway, we can't fund fund that trip. So trips and those sorts of things will disappear in certain types of schools and not in others. I mean, famously, private schools have very extensive connections with all sorts of people, and state schools tend not to. So in a, in a sense, you have again, it's that you have. You have to urge schools to be creative and not lose some of the things they might think were peripheral. Or... And, and also, I think, recognising that some schools need and deserve more resource to help do those things. And actually, those examples would, would uh, in those cases, it would often have the biggest benefit. I think also, I mean, I know when we've worked before um, on one project and we, we went into a school and said, we'd really like to work with your bottom set students. And they said, OK, but we were doing it was things around enrichment. So like the science museum visits and so on. And we went in and the kids said, wow, we never get chosen for this. And it really rammed home to us how even with a particular school, sometimes with science in particular, those enrichment things get targeted at the, the already keen or the slightly more privileged students on the assumption that those are the most interested. 
And again, part of our approach is to just question those taken for granted sort of ideas um, and say, actually, from an equity perspective, where is the most need? And we should give differentially according to need. And sometimes that can be very powerful as well. And of course, during lockdown, uh, schools, that, that inequity must have widened. And some, because some students would have had very dramatically different experiences of being taught at home as to being taught in the schools. So the schools can, you know, one of the arguments for getting kids in school is to, is to provide the things which some homes can't provide. Yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly um, COVID and the lockdowns exacerbated inequalities that were already there and that the so-called gaps have widened. But I think what we've found useful is um, in, in the States, when a, a, a sort of very well-known education theorist, Gloria Ladson-Billings, says, well, maybe we shouldn't just talk about gaps. We should talk about these as education debts. And when you change that that emphasis, it helps us think not just about the lack of the people who are so-called lacking or not doing so well, but actually about the responsibility that the privileged owe to the less privileged to help them, uh, to help support that and to, uh, to quote-unquote close that gap. But I think, yeah, that, that sort of reframing as debt I find quite a useful uh, phrase. It is, and it, and it really does draw attention to the, the kind of we're all in this together sort of attitude to society, that you can't, there can't be simply winners and losers. Uh, I remember getting a um, an outside speaker to the school many years ago who came from a big merchant bank and was talking to students doing A-level economics and A-level history and these sort of things. And he said, well, he said, your, your future is going to be very bright. The kind of economy we'll have in the future will suit people like you. You'll travel around the world and you'll study and so on. you'll go to different places. You won't consider one place your home, your, you know, the world will be your oyster. And he said, well, good. of course, he said, on the other hand, it'll be very bad for people to leave school with free, few skills. And I thought, well, but you're going to have to live in a society where there's people with few skills and there's people with lots of opportunities. And that's not going to be a nice place to live. So it's trying to make a society where there is, as you say, we have a sense of obligation. That's very, it's, it's, it's actually, I think the, the approach, one thing that struck me was about um, so science capital, and indeed the, the, your description of it in, in booklet and so on, was it, it's really quite moral. It's got an old fashioned sort of ethical quality. Of of um, yes, social obligation <laughs> and uh, interconnectivity. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just an old lefty. I'm reading things into it. <laughs> it, it. It is unashamedly a social justice approach. Uh, whether or not you think that's old fashioned, I would say that's uh, <laughs> a matter of personal uh, opinion. <laughs> yeah, that, thank you. If I don't think it's old fashioned. I think it should become back in fashion. Definitely. <laughs> Well, I think also, I think, yes, it, you know, um, be, beware of a world where you don't have that as an objective in schools. And if schools can't be places of social equity and a sense of social justice, then where can be? As you say, we can't maybe, we won't find it necessarily in society more broadly as much as you should. And finally, since we're drawing to an end, I guess the last question I'd like to ask you, Louise, is research of this kind, its aim is to inform teachers practically on on the ground as it were how to approach teaching uh, how to learn from research research given evidence driven teaching where next where next for aspire where next for your research we're analyzing now the uh, the data from young people now that they well they're around 22 age 21 22 so 
we're trying right now to make sense of what's made a difference to their trajectories um, through school for, for those who are in higher education and into the workforce. And the thing we'd really like to understand next is those journeys through early adulthood uh, into their careers. And so we'll have to see what happens next. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, this has been really lovely. I really enjoyed uh, talking. I really enjoyed listening to this because it, it fills me with a sense of optimism. <laughs> and uh, and there is, a, I think, uh, uh, a lot of pessimism right now. I was talking to a teacher yesterday who was saying that the pressure of work and the, and the difficulties they had in class and so on uh, was a feeling of you wanting to get out. And, uh, you know, was it forty percent of teachers are thinking actively about leaving teaching? Uh, so a bit of optimism is not a bad thing right now. Do you feel optimistic? It's funny, as a sociology, I'm usually told that our research is profoundly pessimistic. But yes, <laughs> I, I am essentially an optimistic person. And I think the work we've done over the past 10 years with teachers and just seeing the differences that they're making and that small changes can make a big difference to their practice, their happiness and to the students, I would say that that does give me optimism. Thank you so much. That is a brilliant place to end. And uh, once again, Louise, uh, Professor Louise Archer, thank you so much for joining me on today's show, The, the Morning Break with John Gibbs. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.